I see so many young people today who, just by virtue of being a digital native and growing up in the age of the smartphone, their their dominant source of you know quote unquote nutrition, which isn't very nutritious, is what's on their phone, and it's it's the equivalent of just you know feeding your kid uh, Kool Aid and sugar water and Tootsie Rolls, you know as their steady diet like it's making them sick spiritually sick and I'm on the roll. it's watering time everybody it's time for apollo's watered a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of god so that you might saturate your world with the good news of jesus christ my name is travis michael fleming and i am your host And today, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. A deep conversation with editor and author Brett McCracken. How do we feed our souls in a world that is addicted to novelty? I mean, what place does the Bible have in our online saturated lives? Or what about church in our virtual world? And then think of other things like nature. How do we connect with nature Or are we to connect with nature? Does our soul actually crave it? Or what about things like beauty or books? And even then, what about the internet? What place should that have in our lives? Because it does occupy a place. And many of us are just carried along by the currents of culture each and every day. And we need to stop and find our bearings. Because if we don't, it will carry us away. And we won't be in control. We will be controlled by it. You know, it used to be that we went to the internet to escape the world, but now we escape the world by getting off the internet. And for many of us, we know that we spend way too much time online. We like getting off of our phones and not scrolling, but it just seems that we can't put them down. We can't log off. And even if we do, we feel guilty for getting back on. The question that we must ask ourselves is this, what place... Should our surfing or scrolling have in our lives? And what about the other subjects that I just mentioned? It would be really nice to have a guide in this. And that's actually where Brett McCracken comes in. Brett is a senior editor and director of communications for the Gospel Coalition. He's the author of the book we're going to be talking about today. It's called The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. Crossway graciously gave that to us, and it's a phenomenal book. But those aren't the only books that he has written. He's written Uncomfortable, The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community, also by Crossway. Hipster Christianity, When Church and Cool Collide, by Baker. Or Gray Matters, Navigating the Space Between Legalism and Liberty, also by Baker. He has written for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Huffington Post, CNN.com, Christianity Today, and many other publications. He's a graduate of Wheaton College and UCLA, where he has an MA in Cinema and Media Studies. Brett lives in Santa Ana, California with his wife, Kira, and two sons, Chet and Ira. He's an elder at Southlands Church in Santa Ana. Brett loves movies, particularly those by Terrence Malick, or those with a Malakian sensibility, according to Brett's website. Other things he enjoys, Marilyn Robinson, The Inklings, the TV show Friday Night Lights, Autumn, everything from Kansas City because that's where he grew up. 
He likes to read and write in coffee shops. He enjoys history, art museums, food, hiking, traveling, planning trip itineraries, curating music playlists, and making things better by editing. You know, at Apollos Watered, we're committed to bringing voices your way that help you know how to navigate the world you live in so that you can water it. And that means being aware of our own tendencies, the things that carry us along, and our need to put them in their proper place, that we can organize and order our lives for the glory of God. That's why I really enjoyed this conversation with Brett, and I specifically enjoyed his book, The Wisdom Pyramid. Just to lay it out there, it's a great book, and I would really recommend you getting the book because it qualifies things in our minds and helps us know how to put them in the proper place that we can live successfully and fruitfully in the middle of our crazy and chaotic world. But listen into this conversation as Brett and I discuss the book and what place all of these different pieces should have in our lives so that we might be able to navigate it and water it well. Happy listening. Brett McCracken, welcome to Apollo's Watered. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Are you ready for the Fast Five? I am ready. Here we go. First question for the Fast Five. Batman or Iron Man? Oh, Batman, for sure. Why? And they're both billionaires, uh, but why? Why? Um, I just think the Batman world and aesthetic in mythology is more interesting, personally. It's much more of a depraved world. <laughs> Maybe that speaks to my, yeah, my bent towards the, yeah, the, the darker kind of, yeah, minor key of life. But yeah, I, I've always liked Batman over some of the more, um, I don't know, just smiley face superheroes. He's definitely not that. <laughs> now, you are from the Midwest, but you're living on the West Coast. So here we go. Midwest or West Coast? Oh, man, I'm torn on that because I love both of them um, <clears throat> for different reasons. So, yeah, I can't really commit either way. But I'll say West Coast because that's where I am currently. So you got to love where you are. So oh, that's a good answer. That's a nice way of, you know, scooting your family and everybody else that's back in the Midwest. Sorry, but this is where I'm at. I, I love the Midwest, though. God, I got to say okay. no, no, no hate for the Midwest at all. No hate. Well, that's good. That is good. <laughs> Best 80s movie and why? Best 80s movie. Probably Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. The first one. That's, a cla that's the best one, I think. It's the best one. And I, it's just a movie that I grew up on as a kid growing up in the 80s. I so. wish I love Indiana Jones. I hate the Temple of Doom. <laughs> See, I loved that one as a kid. Probably because as a seven-year-old you love the gory kind of you know just extreme like the roller coaster moment in that movie i loved as a as a little boy see i think for me it was because the other the first one and the third one had more i mean judeo-christian bent yeah maybe true. that's why maybe yeah. that's why. temple of doom is just like hindu paganism yeah and i was like no not yeah. legit not legit <laughs> let's talk about what's legit here we go the third question or fourth question 
So I know that you, and I'm, I'm assuming this, just because having read your book, you, you are trained in music in some way, shape, or form. So here we go. I'm going to give you two different composers of movie soundtracks. Okay. And you have to choose which one and why. I'm, so John Williams mm -hmm. or James Horner? John Williams, for sure. We're, we're just talking about Indiana Jones, so John Williams is... Is a uh, is on the brain, I guess. But yeah, I mean, he's he's probably like the Steven Spielberg of movie, you know, music. He's he's kind of the the iconic movie composer. So, gotta mm -hmm. go with him. Although I did just watch Titanic for the first time in twenty years, which that was James Horner, right? Or no? Yeah, that was Horner. And you know, that's a, of course a unforgettable soundtrack, but. There's so many of them, and there's just so many talented composers. But I, I love movie yeah. soundtracks. So yeah, but I, can I just put in a word for my favorite movie soundtrack composer sure. is Hans Zimmer. Without ah, uh, see, I was gonna put him in there, and I thought mm -hmm. ah, he's so good. So yeah, Hans Zimmer wins in the end. He last, does. here we go. Last question number five, and that is this: If you were a restaurant, what restaurant would you be, and why? Oh wow. I've never been asked that question, but I like it. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but we're going to go with the good thing. It's a hard one for me because I'm a foodie. I love restaurants. If I were a restaurant, <laughs> um, <clears throat> man, I don't even know. Like, I The first thing that comes to mind is just um, this restaurant in Maui called Mama's Fish House, which... I would choose that only because the location is beautiful. So if I had to be a restaurant, I would, I would want to have a nice view. And mm. that, that's a good one there in Hawaii. And it's good food too. Is it like a fast food? No, uh, -uh. it's the opposite. It's, it's kind of like, it's like the fanciest restaurant um, in Maui. So if you go to Maui ever, like you have to go to mama's fish house and you'll get like the most amazing seafood um, you've ever had pretty much. Mm. that sounds actually really really good, That's I, just very wanna, good. I just want to end the show and look it up mm -hmm. <laughs> okay so you've written a book uh that I, I i think is pretty pretty amazing um called the wisdom pyramid i've got it right here um you can tell i've i've read through it and i got notes all over nice. your book Love what it. was the, what was the impetus behind this book yeah well, I mean, it's a couple things. I would say one is just being someone who works on the the internet. I'm a website editor. Um, that's my my day job. I work for the Gospel Coalition, and I spend all of my time pretty much in the space of the internet and on social media a lot because of my job. And I think just my experience of being so immersed in this world made me very aware of the um the bad formation that happens on the internet and the 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 bad things that it can do to your soul frankly and i was seeing it in my own soul um, the more time i would spend online and on social media i just felt myself becoming more foolish you know like you can kind of sense yourself being dumbed down the more time you're in those spaces so part of the impetus was just personal. 
um, I, I am in my own life. I wanted to kind of audit my intakes a little bit and figure out better habits um, that would be conducive to wisdom. I would say another big um, impetus was pastoral. So I, I'm a elder at a local church um, and uh, just being responsible for, for other Christians and their spiritual health and wanting to kind of um, disciple people well in the digital age. Uh, so much of discipleship right now in the 21st century, I think, has a lot to do with our media diets and what constitutes kind of the intakes that are coming into us. And there's so much at our disposal, right? More than ever before, we have voices calling out to us and, you know, watch this, click on this, listen to this. And I just think pastors have to be so um, kind of in the weeds of those decisions with their people and walking them through like their diets of, of information because all of it shapes us, you know, just like food, right? What, what comes into you shapes you for good or for ill. Your physical diet can either make you healthy or it can make you sick. And the proportions, you know, of junk food versus healthy food, you know, will determine that. And the same is true of our spiritual health. And I, I've seen it in people's lives, in people who I am walking with pastorally, um, I've seen their spiritual health just kind of start to decline. And I can point to certain things like they're listening to, you know, some, some really unhelpful media podcasts, whatever, like they're on certain websites where their partisan kind of, um, you know, anger is getting inflamed and um, so I think that's that's a big part of why I wrote this book is just to as a as a, a local church leader to help other church leaders just have a, a toolbox to to help um, in the task of digital uh, discipleship. And then the third one, I would say, is just as a parent, I'm a I'm a dad. Um, this is the first book I've written as a dad, I think. And my kids are small. They're under three. But this is the world that they're going to be growing up in. And I wanted to write a book that would be something that they could use and I could reference um, to, to help them establish from a young age, like diets of wisdom, you know, building their lives around sources that are going to make them wise rather than flipping the pyramid, which we can talk about, you know, in a little bit, the different levels, but I see so many young people today who just by virtue of being a digital native and growing up in the age of the smartphone, yeah. their, their dominant source of, you know, quote unquote nutrition, which isn't very nutritious is what's on their phone. And it's, it's the equivalent of just, you know, feeding your kid uh, Kool-Aid and sugar water and Tootsie rolls, you know, as their steady diet, like it's making them sick, spiritually sick. And if we don't do something about this, um, the next generation is going to be so spiritually sick. So I, yeah, I wrote this book for myself, for the people in my church, and then for my kids and their generation. What made you choose the pyramid idea? So, yeah, that the origin of that was actually, um, uh, a conference talk I was giving in 2017, I think. And I was asked to speak at this conference on the topic of um, being uh, 
a wise Christian in a post-truth age and kind of this fake news, like epistemological crisis that we're in. How do we, how do we live with joy and truth as Christians? And as I was putting together my talk, it was like a TED talk. So I only had like 10 minutes. I was like, man, there's so much I could say, but like, what would be a good visual that would capture in a nutshell, like what, what my argument is going to be, which was essentially that the inputs that feed us um, are a huge part of this. So I came up with the, I was like, what if I took the food pyramid and just kind of adapted it for our knowledge diet and our, our information diet. And so I just kind of sketched it out on a napkin and um, thought, you know, if I were to create a wisdom pyramid with the healthiest things at the bottom and the, the junk food at the top, what would that look like? And so I sketched it out. I had a graphic designer friend um, make it look pretty, like design it in a, in a way that would be appropriate for a conference talk. And then it was on the screen when I gave my talk and uh, it was the thing that really stuck from that talk. I don't think people remembered what I said, but like people were got out their cell phones and were taking pictures of the wisdom pyramid on the screen. And ironically, it kind of went viral on social media that week. And, um, and then ever since it's just been this thing that people keep coming back to. And over the years, people were like, man, that wisdom pyramid graphic is so helpful. And so when it came time for me to think about my next book idea, that was the wisdom pyramid was really the thing that I, I kept like coming back to, like, what if I just took this graphic and like dug a little deeper into each level of it and made it into a book. So, so that's how it came to be. So let, let's talk then about these levels. Cause it, it's really astounding to me that you did this so quickly as you're t- putting together a Ted talk and you have so much that's really jammed in this. I remember walking through it, kind of looking through your table of contents saying, okay, well, what are the layers? What are the levels? How did he, how did he discern which ones to do? And, and we've got the Bible church, nature books, beauty, the internet and social media. So I, I understand the Bible and, and I want to each hit each one, just a, 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 a brief moment, yeah. but talk about why you ordered it the way that you did. Sure. Yeah. That's a question that I get a lot and it's fun to talk about because um, there is, yeah, just, there is a rhyme and a reason to it. I essentially my, um, as I think about wisdom and what, where we get wisdom as a Christian, we, we believe it's from God, right? True wisdom is from above. It's God given, you know, he is the embodiment of wisdom and the source of all wisdom. And so um, I wanted to structure the pyramid in a way that it went from the most kind of proximate to God at the bottom, the closest to the source of, mm-hmm. you know, the Bible is his direct speech. Um, so you can't get any better in terms of like proximity to true wisdom with a capital W than the Bible. And then going up from the Bible, it it kind of is a little bit more removed from God in terms of proximity. So I would argue that the church is the next closest proximity we have to God because it's the Holy Spirit. It's the presence of God among his people. It's the body of Christ. There's a tangible sense of the presence of, you know, Christ in the midst of us. Um, and, And it's, it's just God's chosen, you know, uh, instrument for his mission to, to 
to advance in the world. So the church and then nature is the one where people often have questions about like, why is nature like the third most important source of wisdom? But this is where the proximity to God thing is my argument because nature is proximate to God because it's God's creation. It's his handiwork. There's no, there's no intermediary between God and nature. This is what he made. It's his handiwork. So uh, in scripture itself tells us to look to nature, um, yeah. to, to, to gain wisdom, to learn about God. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. Romans 1, Paul talks about, um, you know, well, there's things we can know about, you know, God and his design just by looking around us. So um, it's the whole idea of general revelation. So that's why nature's, why I put it so foundational, because it's it's got proximity to God is by virtue of being what he made. And then, then um, books is the next one up. And so this is where you start getting into like man-made things, mm -hmm. which introduces fallibility and a little bit more of a kind of a grain of salt you have to take. There can be wisdom because by common grace, God created, you know, humans are his image bearers. So we have the capacity to write books that contain mm -hmm. truth and wisdom and whatnot. But there's also obviously potential for error that we have to be cautious about. So that's why books and then beauty um, being kind of the arts and like human creations, um, again, great potential for containing um, wisdom for us, nutrition for our wisdom diet, but also, um, you know, in, there's potential for error. So mm -hmm. and then at the very top uh, is where I put social media and the Internet. <laughs> and that's like half the time that's not even human made right it's algorithms it's machines that are like thinking for us and predicting what kind of content we want and so you can't get more further removed from god than machines <laughs> than, than you know social that, media <laughs> than social media than twitter so we're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back the most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. I really enjoyed the classification and I, I wanted to know why you delineated it the way that you did. But of course, anyone who's been in church for any period of time, we have the Bible at the foundation of what we do, hopefully, hopefully, yeah. because everything hopefully. else yeah. springs from that. Um, and then when you took the trajectory of the church, I, I wondered, wow, that's slightly different than what I expected, but not too much. You're right though. Nature, I understood because I've, um, there was a book written a few years ago called spiritual pathways where they talk about how 
the word of God is the primary mechanism, but people connect with God through a variety of different ways. Like the heavens declare the glory of God, walking in nature, through music, through all of these different little uh, ways. I particularly like that you did talk about books because my mentor told me years ago that I'll be no different than I am now, depending on three things, the the people, the choices you make, Mm -hmm. the the people you know, and the books you read. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that in large respect has, has been lost by our current generation. I mean, yes, yeah. there are those pockets that are upholding that, I think, tradition. Yeah. But you did that well. And what I really, though, liked is your conversation about beauty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your, uh, one of your, your friends of the Gospel Coalition, Jeremy Treat, um, mm-hmm. in his book, writes about beauty. And mm-hmm. we had him as a guest on the show. Oh, cool. And and we talked about beauty because that's something that most evangelicals don't consider part of their Christian walk, per yeah. se. Sadly, yeah. But yet you talked about art. You wrote about music, which was really refreshing to me. I was trained as a musician. So mm-hmm. I thought, where, where do we see this? Because I've seen so many pastors basically just kick the idea of beauty and uh, I mean, beauty, music, art to the curb. It doesn't mm-hmm. have anything to do with the Christian life. Yeah. Why was that so important for you to put that into this book? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish it weren't the second from the top uh, level because mm. people misinterpret that as being less important than it is. It really is crucial. I think beauty is, is a crucial part of our wisdom diet. Um, and, and anyone who knows me in my writing, you know, I'm an arts and culture critic. That's, that's the majority of what I write about um, for the gospel coalition. So I'm a huge advocate for, for Christians being more engaged um, in that, in that area, but you're right. It, it, it's de-emphasized, um, especially in Protestant Christianity. I think there's a sense of, um, you know, beauty is superfluous. It's a little bit kind of like non-utilitarian, like how does it advance the mission? We're not clear about that. There isn't like a clear ROI, you know, to, to spend a lot of money on a beautiful building. Um, that's more than just, you know, efficient and has utility. Um, we don't, yeah, sadly, Protestants aren't <laughs> spending a lot of money on beauty in their churches. Um, but I think it's so important. Um, and there's so much you could say just theologically, but I mean, one of the big things I come back to is just that our God is a non-utilitarian creator of beauty. Like <laughs> he made a world that all you have to do is look around you in, in nature which is his, his artwork, his beauty. Um, and you, you can see clearly that he made the world more beautiful than it needed to be, right? Did we really need to have 40,000 species of hummingbirds, like each of them beautifully different, each of them crafted to be matched with a certain orchid? You know, there's hummingbirds that exist in the world that literally only feed off of one plant that also exists only for this hummingbird. Like, if you look at the world around you, if you if you taste, you know, chocolate or coffee, um, you can't help but just bear witness to the fact that, you know, God cares about beauty. He didn't just make the world to be this um, 
just boring place where we don't have senses to enjoy things, right? Hmm. He, he made us as sensory creatures. And one of my favorite verses in the Psalms is Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? We don't just know cerebrally that God is good. We taste it with our senses, like we see it. We listen to it. We, we hear God's goodness when we hear a Bach symphony or, you know, some beautiful chord progression. We, we see God's goodness when we look at a sunset. Like last night I was driving down the 57 freeway at sunset with my three-year-old son. And he, we had this whole sweet conversation about like, daddy, daddy, why did God create sunsets? And I was like, because he loves us because he's good. Like, because he wanted to bless us every day with this just mysterious beauty of pink and purple and blue skies. So, I mean, I think with beauty, it, it has to be important to us because it's clearly important to God, right? And even the Bible, um, God's chosen, like, revelation to us is full of beauty, God didn't choose to reveal himself to us with a like list of 50,000 bullet points of like, here are 50,000 like propositions that I want you to remember. Instead, he revealed himself in a story with heroes and villains and conflict and tension and light and dark and, um, just all the forms of beauty, right? I mean, so much of the Old Testament is poetry. Yeah. Um, Jesus himself, when he when he taught, he didn't speak only in logical syllogisms. He spoke in these parables and told these stories and used metaphor and imagery. So if, if the Bible itself <laughs> is a beautiful document that invokes the arts and, and beauty, um, and that's what God decided. That's how he wanted to reveal himself. Um, then I think it needs to be an important part of our, of our lives as well. And I think, you know, just practically in the Christian life, I think beauty is so important for, for worship, for slowing us down enough to, um, to appreciate God. And, and again, to, to taste and see his goodness, to savor it. And we sometimes we rush through life in this utilitarian mode and it it works against our our worship because you know worship is so much about having space to be grateful and to be still and know that he is God and to praise him for who he is. And for me, the arts and beauty do that. Like when I sit still long enough to listen to a beautiful piece of music or watch a beautifully made film or you know, go to an art gallery, like it's all an opportunity for me to ultimately worship God for the extravagance of this world that he created and the majesty of um, what his image bearers have the capacity to come up with, right? There, there's a certain, there's a, there's a way that we can worship God through what artists make, not by worshiping the artist, right? That's just kind of idolatry, <laughs> but but worshiping God because wow like you created um, Bach this genius you created Handel you know these Beethoven like you created these geniuses who had the capacity to put together 
you know, notes and chords and movements in, in such majestic ways. You created Vincent van Gogh to be able to look at your creation, to look at the stars and some, to paint Starry Night in a way that leads us to think differently about the stars and the Starry Night. So I could go on and on, but I mean, beauty is so foundational in the Christian life and it's very tied to Sabbath. And I think a lot of, a lot of the same reasons why Protestants really struggle to maintain, you know, Sabbath and actually take a break from time to time. It's that's a lot of the same reasons why they struggle to appreciate beauty because beauty and Sabbath are go hand in hand because they both kind of require us to appreciate um, the superfluous kind of abundance of God. God is not a God of scarcity. Um, God is a God of abundance. And so if that's true, if that's who he is, then we should be able to slow down and do some things every now and then that are just playful and fun and extravagant and not just utilitarian. Um, and whether that's eating chocolate or going to a play or sitting in front of a, you know, Mark Rothko painting at a museum for an hour and just watch looking at the painting. Like it could be a lot of things, but um, I think it's so important to make space um, in our lives for that. So many people that I've interacted with, the, the concept of beauty is definitely there. They're not familiar with Rothko. They're not mm -hmm. necessarily familiar or desirous to listen to Handel. Yeah. Um, but yet we also know that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. There, but there is this idea that we do, though, as humans, recognize and crave beauty. Mm -hmm. If I remember correctly, uh, Jeremy, when he had been on the show, he had written in his book about a couple. And I can't remember if it was he and his wife when they were younger and perhaps in school. And they were very limited financially. And she had bought flowers and spent some money that really felt that it wasn't, that was extra in, mm -hmm. in his mind. But she said, you know, it's not only food that we need, it's, it's also beauty. We, mm -hmm. we do need beauty mm -hmm. in our lives. And I think of Ecclesiastes, he has made everything beautiful yeah. in, in its time. Beauty is such an intrinsic part of who we are as God's image bearers. But where does that fit? If you're talking to a pastor who seems, seems like he's just trying to keep things together, mm -hmm. how does he take this concept of beauty and play that out within the idea of sanctification in mm -hmm. the Christian life? So how does that mm -hmm. fit together? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like opportunities to incorporate beauty and appreciation of beauty into discipleship and sanctification. I mean, one that comes to mind to go back to what I was saying about like the way that beauty and Sabbath are kind of um, concepts that are related to me. One of the, like one of the, one of the ways we go off track in our spiritual lives is by having a higher estimation of ourselves, right. than we should. And, and sometimes that takes the shape of, thinking that we're more important, that the world will not function if we ever press pause or stop. 
So the, the kind of overworking mentality of like hustling all the time, just do, 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 do. It's really, it's a prideful posture because implicit in that is that, you know, without you functioning full throttle all the time, that things will fall apart and the world will cease to function. I think it's actually a, a way to cultivate humility and, and kind of push back our pride to be able to say, I'm going to rest. I'm going to take a Sabbath or when it comes to beauty to say, I'm going to stop being productive for a few hours and I'm just going to receive something in the form of beauty or art. I'm going to sit still and, and, and rest in the abundance of who God is as manifested in, you know, a beautiful piece of music or a concert or a movie or whatever. So I, yeah, I think there's a lot, there's a lot that you can walk people through in terms of like, you know, pride and humility and being okay, being, you know, not functioning so productively utilitarian all the time. Um, and, and it's, so there's a, there's a whole like theology of Sabbath that I think you could use when you're talking about beauty um, there's a great little book um, by a Catholic theologian, Joseph um, Pieper, called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And he really goes into like a theology of leisure and rest and kind of makes a lot of connections to art and beauty. And that was a book that I drew from a lot as I, as I wrote the chapter on beauty in the book. I, I find that very fascinating because we had Timothy Tennant on the show, uh, president of Asbury, mm -hmm. and he had written a, a book called For the Body, mm -hmm. developing a theology of the body, because for many of us, we have uh, become kind of modern Gnostics. Yeah. And in that, though, he draws a lot on Catholic theology. And I find it very fascinating that as Protestants, there's mm -hmm. been this pendulum away from the excesses that were seen within Catholicism, which is why I think you you see the utilitarian concept within yeah. church buildings, the Quakers, the Shakers, the pure, I mean, very, very simple buildings, yeah. because we're so afraid of going too far. Yeah. Yet, there's the corrective, you know, there's yeah. the the pendulum always swings too far as an overcorrective based on the abuses and the excesses of um, that we've seen in previous generations. Yeah. Why do you think it is Number one, so hard for Protestants to wrap their brains around this, number mm -hmm. one. And mm -hmm. number two, how do we really help people see this as not just a corrective, but really, and not just essential, because it's not salvific per se. Yeah. Depending on how you want to outline. I mean, it's it, it the because the cross is beautiful. You could talk about that and mm -hmm. getting the 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 who Christ is and just our desire for that. But how do you help someone? who is, again, just trying to understand how to get, a, you know, how to help someone see Jesus in the mm -hmm. middle of all this, because it can be a, a great evangelistic tool. Yeah, for sure. To show that, that they, they, they can see the true beauty and really see that through Christ. But go ahead and, yeah. and elaborate on those a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, man, there's a lot there. Um, Boom. Well, that's what this show is for. Okay. Brett. Well, let me just, let me just <laughs> go for it and this. see where I go. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, in terms of why Protestants struggle with it, I think you're right. There's very much a reaction against um, Catholicism. And I think so much of beauty and art and Catholicism tended to 
to be bound up within the church itself and kind of the accoutrements and the extravagance of church buildings. And I mean, you can, you know, that was what indulgences in the Reformation yeah. funded, it's right? A it was a building project. It was a building project. So <laughs> I can see why Protestants are a little bit wary of, you know, extravagant building projects. Um, but I think Protestants need to remember that beauty, um, you know, it, of course, if, if the a beautiful church is the, the end, if it's kind of the end unto itself, then that's a problem, right? But it, but beautiful churches, and you go back to the medieval period and like these great cathedrals that took centuries to build, ultimately they were being built by generations of Christians who never lived to see the finished product for the glory of God, right? It, if, if we think about beauty as something that we care about because it bears witness and points to God in all of his splendor and his majesty, which the most beautiful man-made creation can only begin to barely approximate, um, then I think that's the frame of mind that we have to have when we go about beauty. It's not about bringing glory to us, to our church, um, to the church. It's about glorifying God. So when when Handel makes the Messiah, right, this huge sprawling oratorio, like it's for God's glory. Um, the greatest like Christian art throughout history, I think, is great because it was made out of this pure, you know, glorify God through something excellent and um, just over the top, beautiful. So I think that that's one shift. We could just think about this in terms of like, it's about God. It's our attempt to just show the world that God is worth it, right? When I went to, to Barcelona a few years ago, I went to um, La Sagrada Familia, which is this cathedral that um, this famous Spanish architect, Gaudi, he designed it back in the 1800s and they started building it in the late 1800s, I want to say like 1885 or something, they started building it and it's still under construction, right? 150 or whatever years later, they're still not done with it. And every year they make a little bit more progress. But when I went to see it, it was already this stunning um, piece of architecture that made me just tremble before the majesty of God when I was in this cathedral. And I can't imagine what it's going to be like when it's done there. They think it might be done in like 2026 or 2027. We'll see. Mm. But, um, but I think there's a real potential for beauty to be evangelistic. You know, if we can show a world, you know, the world is increasingly getting used to culture. That's very disposable, right? We forget about, you know, the hit song that was on the charts last week. We've already forgotten, right? The movie that won all the awards last year, like who can remember this year? Like the arts and culture are cycling through at such a fast pace, even the things that we consider beautiful now, like we're going to forget. So if the church, if Christians can be the ones that are advocating for this jaw dropping beauty that really like stops people in their tracks and, and gets them to ask questions like why? Why do, why do Christians care so much about making beautiful things? And we, we answer because God is beautiful and, and glorious and worth it. And because we're trying to give a picture now of the splendor of heaven, right? That's the point of 
us. That's the point of the church right now is to give the world a picture of the future of eternity in, in the now to bring a little bit of the order of heaven into the chaos of, of this world now and beauty and beautiful things are, can be a, a great part of that. It can be a picture um, to the world of, of heaven. That's what the, the great medieval cathedrals were in their time. In the medieval era, like sickness and war and it, like the world was a total mess, but you would come into these cathedrals and it was this little, um, this little like enclave of heaven on earth that, that gave you a sense of the eschatological reality of the church. Um, and I think we, we have to recover that. We have to, we have to be the people making the best art and the best beauty that, that actually gives people pictures of, of heaven on earth. Um, so I could go on and on. One other thing I would say is there are Protestants in our own tradition that we can look to the Puritans, uh, Jonathan Edwards talked a lot about beauty. Um, so it's not as if all Protestants, you know, de-emphasized beauty, um, I think if, if you look within our own tradition, there are plenty of people who thought a lot about the role of beauty. Um, and so I, I drew from Jonathan Edwards quite a bit when I was um, researching and writing the beauty chapter. And he just has some really beautiful lyrical passages describing God's attributes through the beautiful, tangible things that he could see and taste and touch in, in the world. All of it, you know, is an opportunity to glorify God. That was the first part of my conversation with Brett McCracken. And I would encourage you to come back next week as we continue this discussion and delve down deeper because we begin to really pull this apart and see how our online habits are actually forming how we look and understand and see the world, as well as some of the counter practices that we can do that will help us really be able to navigate this world well and thrive in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And if this episode has helped you water your world, would you consider partnering with us? We're looking for watering partners to help this ministry grow and help other people around the world get their faith watered wherever they are. We are delighted and grateful for all of those who have already partnered with us to see so much accomplished in such a short period of time. And we are 25% of our way there. But we can't reach our goal without your help. So go online to apolloswatered.org and in the upper right hand corner is a support us button. Click that. You'll find many suggested amounts. Pick the one that's right for you or simply write in the amount and surprise us. We'd love to have more people grow from connecting with Apollos Watered. And if you've been impacted while listening to a podcast, do me a favor. Screenshot the podcast, text it to a friend, share it on your stories, or simply share it directly from your podcast platform. And here's what you also you can do. I want you to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review because that puts it out there for more people. The more you rate, the more difference it makes. I wrote a review for something a few weeks back and I got an email from Google that my rating was actually making a difference as people were reading it to determine whether they were going to purchase the product I reviewed. So do that. And don't forget, we have content on Instagram, Facebook, and our website that is shareable. Together, let's leave a trickle of truth and encouragement around the world and watch people grow as God works in their lives. Again, much thanks to our Apollos Watered team of Kevin, Melissa, Donovan, Eliana, Rebecca, and Audrey. Water your faith, 
Water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo's Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Thank you.